Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. All right, well, hey, welcome to church. Today for the launch of a brand new sermon series uh, for the next three weeks leading into Easter. We're gonna be talking about the cross, doing some cross theology and laying out for you what the scripture says the cross means and its implications for our lives. Then uh, there's gonna be Easter, right? It's literally four weeks from now, three, three weeks of the cross and then Easter will be four weeks. And then coming out of Easter for the three weeks after Easter, we're gonna do the same thing on the resurrection. We're gonna do some resurrection theology, if you will, and look at what the scripture says about it, how it explains it and its implications for our life. And I couldn't be more excited because, well, these two events and the three days that they are found on are literally the three days that made our world. Now, quick disclaimer though, before we jump in, um, three weeks on the cross and three weeks on the resurrection is, is not enough. It's not enough to do it justice Trying to, to articulate all the theological significance of the cross in three sermons is like if someone asked you to describe a, sun, a sunset on the beach and all the feels and the beauty and the colors, right, with an emoji. You just, you can't do it. It would be like you handed me a 12 pack of Crayola and saying, Tyler, draw the, the sunset for me, okay? It just wouldn't come out well. And yet, and yet, Despite the deficiencies of our words and the time that we're gonna have together to study this, I think it's worth it because in the cross and the empty tomb, we find the fundamentals and the essentials of our faith. In fact, I believe if you get the cross and the tomb right, then nothing else matters. But if you get these two wrong, then nothing else matters. So let's begin today with the cross. Uh, If you would, um, if you're able, wherever you are, uh, would, you, would you stand with me? And if you can't stand, just put yourself in a posture of receiving and surrendering because we are going to read from the word of God, Luke chapter 23, Luke's account of Jesus' passion. Luke 23, starting in verse 33, our author Luke writes, when they came to a place called the skull, They nailed Jesus to the cross. The criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. 
But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. By this time, it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Now, in beginning to explain the cross to you today, we could start with a lot of theological principles, a lot of different passages in a lot of different places. But I think it's important to start here with the story and this essential and practical truth. This is our big cross theology principle for today. The cross, the cross is how God forgives our sins. Will you do me a favor wherever you are? Will you just repeat this after me? Whether you're at home, you know, kids join with us. Maybe you're at the gym running on a treadmill. Kind of whisper this, okay? But like seriously, just repeat this after me. The cross is how God forgives our sins. Let me say it to you a little bit differently. The cross is the divine solution to the human problem. Yep, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, what's the human problem? Our sin. <laughs> see, the story of humanity is not a story of progress as we'd like to believe. Sure, we've progressed in the fields of medicine, science, and technology, but we haven't progressed in terms of character or morality. If the last hundred years hasn't proved that to you, look at the last five years. We continue to be bent towards selfishness. We continue to prove to ourselves and others that we are capable of great evil and great violence when we're put in the right circumstances. So the story of humanity isn't of progress, it's of our continual sin. But I have good news for you today. The cross 2,000 years ago is how God forgives those. And we have forgiveness accessible to us today. So one more time, repeat this important truth. If you get nothing else today, get this. The cross is how God forgives our sin. And thank God for it. Now, that's our big principle today. For the rest of our time, I wanna spend our time working it out by giving you five sub points. You know, I always like to talk to the note takers out there. So if you're a note taker, write this, this, that phrase, the cross forgives our sins at the top of the page. And then we're gonna work through five different points <clears throat> as we make our way through the message. And the first one is significant. Because I think if we're truly going to appreciate the forgiveness of the cross, well, then we have to start by appreciating the depth and the depravity and the wickedness of our sins. So here's point number one. While the cross is how God forgives our sins, the cross also shows us how serious our sin is. How serious our sin is. Now, again, I think we need to start here because I have found in the churches and in our culture today, we have lost all of our vernacular and verbiage to talk about sin. In churches, we just don't talk about it as much because many churches are driven by what I call the church growth industry. 
The only metric that matters to many church leaders, small, big, and everywhere in between, is how many butts we can put in the seats, how big we can expand our platform, how many times we can franchise uh, you know, our brand. And it's, it's all about growth, bigger, bigger, bigger. And so when you're trying to grow bigger, you gotta keep it optimistic. You gotta keep it exciting. You gotta talk about the five ways to make your life better using Jesus, rather than by articulating the realities of sin. Now, the good news of Christianity is that there is a lot of optimism and a lot of hope and a lot of life change available in Christ, But before you can even step in Christianity, you have to embrace the sobering realities of your own personal sin and wickedness. We have to identify the fact that we are all, we are all broken in a deep way and infected by sin. So much so that God had to die for us. Now, I believe that the church is just really taking its cues from our culture because again, our culture has pushed sin out of the popular conversation. In fact, I have found that when we talk about sin in our culture today, we tend to do it in in, in one of three ways. Uh, You can see it on the slide here. Uh, We either say that it's not a sin, it's not my fault, or it's not that bad. It's not a sin, it's not my fault, or it's not that bad. We'll say it's not a sin. You know, that's not really in the Bible The scripture doesn't actually say that, or maybe the scripture does say that, but I just disagree with the scripture there. A lot of times we read in scripture the clear voice of God, but then rather than simply obeying God's voice, we go with the voice in our head or the voice in our heart because we trust our reason or our feelings more than God's truth. I would suggest to you that in fact, this was the uh, original sin in the garden with Adam and Eve. Rather than trusting in the clear voice of God, don't eat the fruit, They listen to the still small voice of the serpent inside, in their ears, in their heart. Did God really say that? And they trusted their own reason and their own feelings rather than God's word. They redefined sin. Now, second, if we don't say it's not a sin, then oftentimes we'll say, well, maybe it is a sin or, you know, it it is, it is, it is brokenness, example of brokenness in my life, but it's not my fault. And we blame away the sin in our life where we victimize ourselves and blame the sin on someone else. We love to blame it on our parents or uh, we love to blame it on our religious experiences or the institutions and uh, things in our environments that we grew up in that that shaped us and formed us and and traumatized us. And for the record, I think it's important to acknowledge there is a lot of blame to go around. Okay, if you have parents and they're human beings, then yes, they, they messed you up. Okay, all, all parents are sinners. Okay, you know what the goal is of parenting as you become a parent and you learn about it? The goal is not to mess your kids up. You realize you're gonna mess them up. It's to mess them up as little as possible because we're sinners, we're sinners. And whether your parents were well-adjusted and good parents or not, there were things that they did that warped you. Same thing for your church or your religious experience. You may have gained some good things from it, but I guarantee you, your pastors, your preachers, your leaders, your church, and the people in it were full of sin. There's ways that they hurt and wounded you. Same thing for our society. The schools you went to, the teams you played for, the coaches you had, the government and the nation that you live in, it is all infected by sin. If human beings founded it and if human beings are still leading it, then their sin rubs off on it. So again, there's lots of blame to go around. A lot of times we're just impacted by the sinful environment we live in. But in the words of Dr. Phil, you got one finger pointed at them, but three pointed right back at you. So sooner or later, we have to look in the mirror and begin to take personal responsibility for our own brokenness and acknowledge our own sin. 
But that's not what our culture encourages. We either say it's not a sin, it's not my fault, or third, it's not that bad. This is when we trivialize sin. We say things like, oh, it's just a mistake. Or, you know, I'm sorry, I'll learn from it. It, it, was, it was a growth, this is the HR term, it's a growth opportunity. <laughs> I love how in, in political discourse, we love to deflect when it comes to our sin. Yeah, what about the Democrats? Or I love how we do ends justify the means thinking. It is the lesser of two evils. I had to do it. Okay, quick thing on this. You realize that when it comes to ends justify the means thinking, that's not Christian. It's not Christian. God doesn't call you to control the ends. You know that, right? God says, I'll control the ends. You are to control the means. You're to trust me. You're to put into this thing we call life, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's it. That's your role. You're to love God through holiness. You're to love others through self-sacrifice. Put that into life and then just trust that on my end, I'll work things out. But do you trust me? Most of us don't. And we'll trivialize our sins by, by saying, well, you know, I just, it's in justify the means, it's not that bad. Well, it's not as bad as theirs. This is how our culture conditions us, y'all. And yet not one of these three responses look anything like the Christian assessment of sin. You know how Christianity assesses sin? It says sin is real, sin is in them, sin is in you, and sin is bad. Yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead, how bad? Well, exhibit A, let me present to you God on the cross. God had to die for it, literally. Now look, we can change the, uh, the verbiage of sin all we want to, but you and I both know that at the end of the day, we can't change the reality of it and the experience of it. You may stop calling it a sin or you may stop pretending like it doesn't impact you, but deep down inside, we know that it does. Deep down inside, so many of us are plagued with, with guilt or with brokenness or with shame or disappointment or disillusionment in our lives. Those are the remnants of sin. The Christian story speaks a better word. Again, it soberingly reminds us that we are all sinful, but it also reminds us that on the cross, God dealt with our sin. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. Jesus died the death we should have died. And on the cross, he broke the power of sin and he paid the penalty of sin for you and for me. Yes, sin is serious, but the cross is the way that God deals with it. The cross is the way that God forgives it. Praise God for it. Now, now that leads us to point number two. While sin is serious, second, second, the cross is comprehensive and capable. In fact, there is no sin, there is no sinner that the cross cannot forgive. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, read this with me. Uh, Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Powerful words. And uh, it says the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice, the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. Now, this is incredible poise and peace of mind uh, by Jesus here, because literally he's hanging there on the cross, the ultimate victim of injustice, dying. And he has the presence of mind and compassion to say, Father, forgive them. Forgive who? Well, he actually names three groups of people here. The Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, 
and the watching crowd. And what I find fascinating about this is that each one of these three groups that he deliberately forgives on the cross represents three different categories of sin that we're all guilty of and that the cross is capable of forgiving. The first one's in the the Jewish religious leaders. It's what I would call intentional sin, intentional sin. These are the conscious acts of sin that we commit, that we know we commit, that we know the evil of, the wickedness of, and yet we do them anyways. Is there any worse of an intentional sin than nailing the son of God to the cross, by the way? And yet this is what the Jewish religious religious leaders did. They schemed against Jesus. They turned Judas uh, against him out of fear and jealousy, y'all. They arrested him in the middle of the night, whipped up false charges in a false trial, pressured Pilate to have him crucified and down to Jesus's dying breath, they mocked and sneered and jeered him. Intentional sin, y'all. All of us, are guilty of this sort of intentional sin. Now, if you're like, well, I don't, I'm not sure what my in- intentional sins are. Well, okay, I'm gonna give you the youth group question to do some self-reflection here, okay? This is what they always ask in youth group. It's, it's a good question, all right? So I want you to think about this. Uh, let's pretend for a moment that you found out today that, uh, that for your entire life, you're 40 years old, the last 40 years of your life, someone had been following you with cameras and microphones just out of sight. And they recorded everything you did, every word you said, every message you've sent, your best moments, but also your worst moments. And let's say you found out that, um, that later uh, today, they had edited up a two hour special for the whole world to see of the worst moments, the most sinful, wicked moments of your life. And they broadcasted it to the world. Question for you. How long would it take after that show for you to be fired? How long would it take for you to be divorced? How long would it take for you to be defriended, deplatformed, and canceled? If you're like me, probably not long. What's your point here? My point is this, we're all guilty of intentional sin. Even if we're really good at covering it up with a veneer of religiosity like these religious leaders were, we're still capable of it, we're still guilty of it. Now, the second category is the Roman soldiers and uh, they're guilty of what I'd call inadvertent sin, inadvertent sin. They just showed up for the job that day. They didn't know Jesus from Adam, okay? (laughs) Which is like an interesting theological pun, by the way. They didn't know Jesus. Anyways, Jesus from, okay, you get it? Some of you get it. But but they, they didn't know Jesus from Adam. They were just there today crucifying three more criminals, doing their thing. And yet, inadvertently, they were, complicit in an evil, cruel, and unjust political system. That's literally nailing an innocent man to the cross. In fact, they were participating in a job that led them to have to do evil things. And we see in the story how their job deformed their hearts over time. They're gambling for a poor man's clothes. They're joining in the sneers and the jeers of Jesus as he's crucified on the cross. Now, the idea here is that the same is true of us. There are systems and institutions today that are infected with sin that all of us are complicit in, sometimes consciously, oftentimes unconsciously. Yet we support them or we do nothing about them. 
because of our sin. Okay, so the easiest example of this to point out in this cultural moment would be to talk about systemic and institutional racism, which is there and the church should be on the front line of addressing. But I wanna, I wanna take it, let's do one that's even less politically charged, okay? Because th- this one will maybe be even easier for, for some to understand. Uh, who likes bananas? I love bananas for the rest. I lo- it's a great fruit. Bananas are sweet, clean, carb-rich, a medium-sized banana. It's got about 30 carbs in them. Oh, if you freeze a banana, when it gets brown, by the way, you gotta let it get pretty brown. But if you freeze a banana and then blend it up with some Greek yogurt, a touch of honey, maybe some peanut butter, nut butter if you're paleo, right? Then, then it tastes something like, like ice cream. It's not exactly ice cream, but it's something like it. I love bananas, beautiful thing. And I love bananas because they're, they're cheap, like 50 cent a pound at the grocery store. Now, here's my question for you. How do we get bananas for 50 cent a pound? Think about it. Bananas have to be grown in the tropics, overseas somewhere like, like Guatemala, Costa Rica, Honduras. And then they have to be handpicked by farmers and farmhands. And then they have to be packed away in refrigerated boxes that protect them from getting beaten up. And they have to be shipped overseas to our country. And then grocers, uh, grocers have to mark them up to a price where they actually make a profit off of them. All of that cost and overhead considered, how in the world do we get them at the cheap price of like 50 cent a pound? Well, I'll tell you why. The reason why we don't pay is because at the beginning of the banana system, the poor farmers and farmhands in Guatemala do. With their working conditions, with their measly wages that keep them locked into poverty, they pay. And by the way, bananas aren't the only thing that's brought to our prosperous country at the expense of the poor. Now, some of you are like, well, Tyler, well, I gotta eat my bananas though. What am I supposed to do about it? You know, the blood's on, on Walmart's hands, not mine. Well, even still, we are complicit in it. Even if you're not conscious of it, and there are a thousand ways that we are complicit in systems like this, but we're, that we're not conscious of. Even if you're not conscious of it, you're complicit in these sins. Third type of sin we see in the watching crowd. I would call this uh, apathetic sin, apathetic sin. Uh, these are what some Christians call sins of omission. They're sins of commission. Those are the ones that you do. They're sins of omission. Those are the things that you don't do that you know you should do. Like for example, how do we continue to build bigger houses here in East Louisville knowing that there are 6,000 children in the Jefferson County public school system who are homeless right now? Well, you know, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And yet we're guilty of it nonetheless. Hey, Tyler, I'm really glad I came to church today so you could rail me over the head with uh, sin for the first 20 minutes of your sermon. Appreciate that. Well, okay, listen, here's my point. My point is that I I want to clearly communicate we are all sinners. We are all guilty of egregious sin. We're all guilty of intentional sin and inadvertent sin and apathetic sin as well. And yet, if that burden is weighing on you today, hear the good news of Jesus from the cross. He looks at these sinners just like you and just like me and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying we are far more wicked than we'd ever admit or ever realize, but we are far more forgiven than we'd ever hope 
or believe. And how? Because of the cross. The cross is comprehensible. It is capable to forgive any sin, to forgive any sinner, even your sin, even mine, even a sinner like you and a sinner like me. Praise God for it. Which again, leads us now to point number three. Point number three. Third, uh, the cross is effective when it's accepted. Say that again. The cross is effective if and only if it's accepted. Now, I believe from God, every human being receives two great gifts. One is the image of God and the other is the forgiveness of God. We have all received the image of God. We have all been stamped with the divine. That means that we have undeniable and infinite value, period. Nothing can take that away from us. But here's the big difference between God's image and God's forgiveness. God's image is ours to have just because. We don't have to do anything to receive it, it's just given. But God's forgiveness is a gift that must be opened. It's wrapped up and waiting for you under the tree, if you will, but you have to pull it out and unwrap it. But it is as simple as that. Upon acceptance, it is effective. Luke chapter 23, verse 39, interesting passage here. It's one of my favorites. Uh, so it says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. Uh, he said, so you're Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself, and us too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, said, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I, I call this buzzer beater salvation, right? Because this criminal on the cross is like, he's about to die. He's moments away from death, 10, nine, eight, seven. And yet he takes the jump shot, right? And he's like, God, Jesus, forgive me. Okay, uh, today, remember me when you come into, into your kingdom. And it's like, and the buzzer goes off and Jesus checks. And he's like, did he release it before the review? Oh yes, he released it. And so the shot's good. And today you'll be with me in paradise. Now I'm trivializing it by, by being kind of playful, but literally this is the way that God lavishes grace upon us. How much does this criminal know about Jesus at this point? Not much. How much does he really believe? He even says to the other criminal, we're here because we deserve it. This is a man who's been sentenced to death. And yet in a moment of desperation, as he breathes his last, Jesus offers him forgiveness. New Testament scholar Robert Stein wrote a commentary on Luke. Uh, he describes this moment like this. He says, to the criminal's vague when, Jesus responded with a precise today. This day, through Jesus' death, salvation was being achieved. And the criminal, even the criminal would share in it. Now, how does that even work, Tyler? Well, that leads us to point number four. You ready? Note takers, you still with me? Here, here's point number four about the forgiveness of the cross. Fourth, uh, it's effective because Jesus breaks the penalty and power of sin. It's effective upon acceptance and it's effective because Jesus breaks the penalty and power of sin. Now, uh, when it comes to justice and uh, forgiveness and the interplay between the two, one of the universal laws of the two is this. Every wrong must be paid for by someone. The bigger the wrong, the costlier the price, but wrongs done cannot be ignored. 
They have to be absorbed by someone. They either have to be forgiven by the victim or they have to bear, uh, the, the, the perpetrator has to bear the weight and the consequences of their actions. But at the end of the day, someone has to pay. Now, if you've been around this church long, you know that this is a way that I often like to talk about the cross. But if you haven't, pay close attention now because these truths are vital, right? Let me give you a few examples to kind of flesh this out for you. Um, I'll give you an economic one. Uh, let's say that uh, one day your neighbor's backing out of their, their driveway, right? And uh, I don't know, like they get a call or something. And so they look down and in a second of carelessness, they, they turn a little too sharp and they hit your mailbox and knock it down. $50 to replace. In that moment, a wrong's been done, right? And someone has to pay and you have a choice. You can either make them pay the 50 bucks or you can pay, but someone's got to pay. Now it's 50 bucks, you're a good neighbor, so you're probably not gonna charge him. But let's say that their punk teenager comes flying out of the driveway one day and uh, instead of hitting your mailbox, they hit your brand new car parked on the road and $2,000 cosmetic bill at the body shop. Now in that moment, a wrong's been done and someone has to pay. And don't you see, the bigger the wrong done, the costlier the price of it, right? But you have a choice. You can either make them pay or you can pay. You see how this works here? I'll give you a societal example. Uh, let's say there's some sort of a serial criminal or murderer and they have uh, killed many people. But on the day that they stand before the judge, the judge looks at him and says, you know what, you, you look like you're sorry, so you're forgiven. You can go free. Now in that moment, if the judge just releases this, this criminal murderer, then there will be a public outcry from society because here's what we understand. If he doesn't pay, then we pay. The family of the victims pay because they get no justice. Society pays because there's no legislation to curb others like this evil man from doing the very same thing. At the end of the day, someone's gotta pay though. I'll give you one more example. Let's do a relational one. Let's say your best friend in life turns on you. They betray you. They start spreading rumors about you that are untrue and aimed to hurt you and they're successful. They cost you other friendships. They cost you your reputation in, in your church or at your workplace or in your community. In that moment, a wrong's been done. And again, you have one of two choices. You can make them pay. You can get at them, not just get even, but, but, but get ahead or you can pay and you can bear the suffering of forgiveness and it will hurt because the bigger the wrong done, the costlier the suffering, right? But at the end of the day, someone has to pay. Now look, this is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus raises his hands and he says, I'll pay, I'll pay. I'm the only one who can afford it anyways. The sin burden of humanity is inestimable, but my faithfulness and righteousness is infinite. So I'll pay. An eternal God for an eternal sin debt. An innocent God for a sinful humanity. I'll pay the debt. Hannah Arendt once wrote this about forgiveness. Uh, she said, uh, forgiveness is the only reaction that does not uh, merely react, but acts 
anew. Now, what's most of our uh, knee-jerk reaction whenever somebody does something wrong to us? We, we react. We react in vengeance. We've got to get even. We've got to get hit, right? I'm going to make you pay. But she says forgiveness is the only reaction that doesn't merely react, but it acts anew, unexpectedly, unconditioned by the act which provoked it, and therefore freeing from its consequences both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. What's Hannah saying here? What she's saying is that free, uh, forgiveness actually breaks the cycle. It breaks the, the momentum of sin itself, of brokenness. Look, if you put vengeance on top of, of, of evil, it just gets worse. Two wrongs don't make a right. No, wrong plus wrong equals two wrongs. Two wrongs make two wrongs, right? But, but her point here is that when you introduce forgiveness into the equation, it's actually good enough, big enough to swallow the wrong done. And in so doing, it cancels the penalty of sin for the perpetrator and it cancels the power of sin to destroy the relationship between the victim and the perpetrator. That's the power of forgiveness. This is what we see at a cosmic level on the cross. Uh, Luke 23, 44, interesting how uh, Luke describes it here. Uh, he says, by this time it was about noon, darkness fell across the whole land, it's three o'clock. The light uh, from the sun was gone and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Now you see what's happening here? In Jesus' dying moments, as he throws himself into the arms of the Father in complete and total trust, it says that the temple curtain's torn. Which curtain? Well, many scholars believe that this was the curtain that surrounded the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum in the middle of the temple where the presence of God literally dwelt. And you know what I believe? I believe that this moment was the nail in the coffin of Jesus's judgment on the temple. He had spent most of his career judging the corrupt temple leadership. At the beginning of Holy Week, he goes into the temple and what? He judges the temple. It's what ultimately gets him on the cross. And here he is in his final moments as he dies. The temple, the temple curtain is torn. It's judgment on the temple. You, you know what, the, what the, the, the curtain being torn shows us? It shows us that the presence of God is no longer there and forgiveness will no longer be wrought there in the temple. No, the presence of God is found in the crucified King Jesus. And forgiveness will only be found in the crucified King Jesus. No longer do we need high priests offering perpetual sacrifices day in and day out for the people because we have one high priest, Jesus the Christ, who has now offered a once and for all sacrifice for all of us. Jesus says, I'll pay. And he does. Hebrews chapter 10 describes it like this. It says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those are being made holy. <laughs> what a gift that is. Say, we're, we're running out of time here. So what I wanna do is as I wanna review these points real quickly. And then I wanna partake of communion together. So, so as I review these, if you will, if you have your communion emblems close by, go ahead and grab them and get them ready. Uh, we're gonna take them at the end of the message. We're not gonna have like a specific communion meditation today because I believe this entire sermon was a meditation. 
Hopefully it taught you something new or it forced you to look deeper within or it reminded you of the wonders of the forgiveness of the cross. So, so as we review here and get to our last point, go grab your communion and we'll partake in, in just a moment. Here's a quick review. Today we've learned that the cross is how God forgives our sin. That's cross theology. It shows us how serious sin is. It proves to be comprehensive and capable. There is no sin the cross of Jesus Christ can't forgive. It's effective when accepted. It's effective because on the cross, Jesus breaks the penalty and the power of sin. And last, this is the king. And this is the kingdom available in Jesus. A cross-shaped one. You know what I have come after studying the, the passion narratives for years now? You know what I've come to call them? I've come to call them the cruciform coronation of Jesus or the cross-shaped coronation of Jesus. Because from the perspective of the New Testament writers, as upside down as this may sound, when Jesus is nailed on the cross, he's being crowned as king and his kingdom is being unleashed in a new and fresh way. Look at what Paul says. Classic passage here, the oldest worship hymn we have in scripture. You've heard this read many times before in church. Philippians 2, 6, Paul describing Jesus says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the uh, humble position of a slave and uh, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Don't miss this next word. Therefore, therefore, because he stooped down and became one of us and stooped down even lower and paid for our sin on the cross, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow like before a king in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every ch a tongue will, shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, King to the glory of the Father. Don't you see? Paul sees this moment as a crowning. And so does Luke and all the other gospel writers. Do you see the irony in the way Jesus is crucified? He's given a crown, although it be a crown of thorns. He's robed in purple, although it be thrown over his lashed back. He's hailed king of the Jews, although it be in mockery. He's called the son of God, although it be an accusation of blasphemy. And he's lifted up high for all to see, although it be on a cross. This is the Christian God, y'all. And out of all the major religions out there, this is the only God who says, I'm willing to become one of you in order to be with you. I'm willing to die for you in order to be with you forever. You know, I have noticed recently in our culture that there's been a reemergence of spirituality which encourages me. What I've found is that most people are hoping somewhere out there underneath the universe, there's like this positive, benevolent, loving force to look to. They'll say things like, well, you know, I'm gonna put positive vibes out in the universe today, positive vibes. I hope the universe smiles upon me. What I put into the universe today uh, is good. And so I hope to get good back from the universe. And while I appreciate the, the hope and the sentiment in that, not to be rude, but I just, I just need to be clear with you. You need to know the universe doesn't care 
about you. The universe doesn't have a, a consciousness, okay? The matter that makes up this table, it doesn't care for you or me. Gravity, it doesn't care for you or me. It just gravities us, right? <laughs> and yet there's still that hope and sentiment underneath. So if that's you today and you're hoping that there is a positive, benevolent, loving force behind it all, I have good news. His name is Jesus. And he knew the cost of forgiving you before he did it. But he also knew the cost of not forgiving you before he did it. And he judged you as worth it. He paid for your sin and mine. And that's what we remember when we partake of communion. So right now, take of the bread which represents his body broken and drink from the cup that represents his blood poured out. And let's thank God for our crucified king.